Welcome to Tales from the Tomb, a very special series that will feature Bible passages that have been known to frighten troubled souls unnecessarily, verses that can be seen as weird, strange, or even haunting will be discussed by our host, and the effort will be made to show how these creepy passages somehow point to Jesus Christ and his promises that are for you. Tales from the Tomb is all in good fun that ends with good news. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Tales from the Tomb, the first in its series that will be random times throughout the year, maybe on spooky days like Halloween, for example, which is today, when this episode releases. If there's ever a a time of a Friday the 13th or another spooky day, these tales from the tomb uh, will drop and it will feature a weird or strange or creepy passage in the Bible, or a passage in the Bible that has maybe scared me in the past. And I'm going to use it to show how it points to Christ and his promise to sinners through his death and resurrection. Because I believe that every passage in Scripture can do that, can point to Christ somehow. I am a big fan of Halloween. I'm a big fan of fun like the old monster movies, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, The Mummy, you know, that kind of spooky, creepy feeling. And some people are sensitive to that, and I respect that. Um, And I know that spooky stuff isn't for them, and that's fine. But for those of us that do love and do enjoy the entertainment part of uh, the creepies, uh, (laughs) the spookiness of things, who in our Christian freedom can laugh at it and enjoy it for the entertainment that it is, um, this would be a very good podcast for you to kind of uh, reclaim uh, a genre that, when done in good taste, um, can be very fun. Um, I did mention that it was Halloween today, the spooky day of the year, right? Well, it also just so happens to be the day in the year 1517, October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, inadvertently sparking the Protestant Reformation. And if you've never heard of this story before, take the time to read it. It is fascinating. And I'll give a brief rundown about it right here. So up to this point in 1517, for over a thousand years, the church has, the Catholic church at the time, uh, had built up traditions, practices, teachings, just on top of each other. It kind of, well, not kind of, but definitely left the uh, text of scripture. Added things like, such as purgatory, the idea that um, as sinners, we aren't guaranteed 
full assurance in this life of salvation that we must do the best we can and expect that if we do the best that we can, God will know that we did our best and based off of our performance, will credit or will limit the time that we have in this made-up place called purgatory where it's not heaven, it's not hell, but it's a place where we go to work off our sin in the afterlife. Not good news at all. And so how one is can be saved or expected to be saved during this time was if they did their best, God would do the rest. So they thought. And this idea of doing penance or paying off sin that you haven't received full mercy and grace for yet. It, it was a very insufficient salvation, courtesy of Christ, that was just not taught. And so you had people like Martin Luther who grew up in very, with very guilty consciences and with a lot of fear of this uncertainty of where they're going to be when they die. Their uncertainty of their relationship with God, the uncertainty of whether or not they're going to avoid the fires of hell. Um, And for Luther and for many, that was a very big deal, a very problem that they struggled with. How can I know that I'm saved? What if I'm damned? You know, it was a very frightful thing. So long story short, Luther goes to become a monk because he figures the way he's taught that that will give him a better chance of getting into heaven if he becomes a monk and devotes his life to the monastery. And he uh, will have a leg up in making sure that he's done all that he can to avoid years in purgatory and go to heaven. And part of his training, he was sent to study the original languages. There was this theme of the day back then, this desire to go back to the original sources. And that wasn't just the original sources in Christianity, but it was the original sources throughout philosophy and other areas of the humanities. And so Luther was sent to go back to the original sources of scripture. At the time, known scripture was in Latin. Not everyone had a Bible like today. It was just the church and the church officials who had easy access to the Latin version of the Bible. And so Luther is sent off to go study the Greek and the Hebrew. And so he does. And he always was taught by the church that if you do penance and believe, you will be saved. And do penance, like I said, is this working off your sin, right? You're doing penance towards getting out of purgatory, making sure that you're holy enough to enter into heaven. It's kind of how it worked out. And as he's studying the scriptures, especially Romans, it hits him that the Latin translation of where it says repent and believe, the Latin translation of that kind of, it did come across as do penance and believe. And Luther saw that, wait, no, it's saying repent and believe. And then also in Romans, he came across this concept of the righteous shall live by faith. And he always assumed that this was talking about the righteousness of God that God uses to judge and condemn unrighteous people. 
and that he, Martin Luther, and us would have to work to earn and gain this righteousness through what we did in this life, through our works. And as he studied the texts, he realized through Romans, through Galatians, and through other parts of the Bible, that this righteousness of God that we live by, that the righteous will live by faith, is not something that we earn and obtain. It's something that is given as a gift by God freely, by faith, through Jesus Christ, to sinners, to not just, you know, the best Christians over here, but to any sinner who believes. And this was a game changer. This was, it wasn't a new concept because it was always in scripture, but at the time it came across as new because it just wasn't what was taught. So Luther's catching steam with this and he's teaching it to his church and he's teaching it to others and he sees this practice of selling things that are called indulgences this idea that if you purchase this indulgence that was given out by the pope that was used to help pay for saint saint peter's basilica that if a person bought these indulgences not only did it guarantee your merit in this life, but also if you bought, if you paid for more indulgences, you could purchase the merit of your loved ones who were in purgatory trying to work time off. This idea that there were saints who obtained all the merit they needed and this extra merit the Pope had access to. And so this treasury of merit that the Pope had access to, he would then grant or give to those who paid for these indulgences. There was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel who was a salesman of these indulgences and he would go about with a band with him that would put on these great performances that would stoke the emotions of people with fears of hellfire and and damnation and would say things like, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs meaning a soul is sprung from purgatory and goes to heaven. So these people were buying these indulgences by the bushel. These poor, destitute people in fear of their eternity are handing over money to purchase favor, the favor of God. And the church was selling this. And Luther caught on to this, and it hurled him to the point of action. He didn't expect the Reformation to happen because of this. He was hoping for a debate to correct the church, not split it, not change it. So he wrote on his list of 95 theses or 95 items against the practices of indulgences and against the authority of Pope and councils over the authority of scripture intact it or nailed it on the church door in Wittenberg. And this was a practice back then that was used to initiate debate. It wasn't like a defiant act. Like if we were to go in and nail something on the church door, you know, that would be like vandalism or whatever. That wasn't the case back then. It was just a bulletin board or whatever. Well, there also happened to be an invention at the time called the the uh, printing press. The, I believe it was the um, the Gutenberg printing press, I believe. I may have just totally 
not use the right term for that, but we'll go with that for now. And his students took these 95 theses and printed them in mass numbers and sent them out everywhere, and it caught on like wildfire. And I'm going to end the Reformation story right there. But that happened, nailing of the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. That happened on October 31st, All Hallows' Eve in 1517. So, as we celebrate Halloween today, celebrate, that's kind of, maybe that's kind of pushing it, as we enjoy Halloween today. Also, let's be thankful for Reformation Day, which is also today, of when God used sinners like Martin Luther to revive and to bring back the gospel to a world that had grown dark to it. And in many ways, we are living in a world right now where many people, especially people in the church, who desperately need to be told that the righteousness that they need to have in order to receive the favor of God is not a righteousness that they earn or do, but a righteousness that is given as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. That is awesome. And as I'm going to move on to this next part of Tales from the Tomb, I'm going to speak about a verse that kind of flows with this theme of Reformation Day and what Martin Luther helped spark and initiate. And it's, for me, what I used to believe or think was the scariest verse or verses in the Bible. That's right, you heard me. Verses that scared me so much as a kid. My, my misunderstanding of it. And it is Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21 through verse 23. And it says, Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus talking, if you have a red letter Bible, these letters and words are in red. So this is Jesus talking, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that used to scare me because I read it and interpreted it as, wow, these people that did all these wonderful things, it wasn't enough to get them into heaven. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't even recognize these things as good works because he called them workers of lawlessness. And Jesus said, I never knew you. In the other passage before it says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter into heaven. So that, that sounds like a command. It sounds like a law. And so I used to think, I've got to go above and beyond. I need to be like a full-time missionary to the remotest part of the world, risking life and limb. Maybe God will approve that then. And it wasn't until kind of like how uh, the Protestant Reformation brought about this idea that righteousness is given as a gift. It's not something that we can earn. 
Look and see what these people in this passage were pointing to as their, their reasons or their credentials for Jesus to know them or for them to enter heaven. Didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Didn't we? Didn't I? But Jesus, didn't I do all these things? But Lord, didn't I do all these things for you, Lord? Their reasons and credentials for heaven were the things that they thought they had done for God. How would have this looked different if their reasons and credentials for why Jesus should know them and why they should inherit eternal life were not the things that they thought they had done for God, but they claimed the promise and pointed to the promise of what Christ had done for them. I believe this situation would have been differently. Jesus would have known them because the righteous shall live by faith, right? So how does one inherit eternal life? By doing the will of the Father. By doing, and the will of the Father is doing the work of the Father. In another passage, we see that Jesus answers that. This is the work of the Father, to believe in the one whom he has sent. And that's Jesus Christ. What is the will of God? To do the work of God. What is the work of God? To believe in the one who he has sent. So, for those of you who might be out there terrified over the idea that you haven't done enough to inherit eternal life, you're absolutely right. You have not done enough to inherit eternal life. You will never do enough to inherit eternal life. You will never do enough to be righteous before God. But I have good news for you. Christ was righteous for you. And his righteousness is given to you as a gift, freely on account of Christ alone. Because of that, heaven is yours. Because it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom as a gift. So stop placing your hope and faith in you. Stop placing your hope and faith in your faith. Place your faith. Bet the entire farm on Jesus Christ and what he has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. It's all gift, given freely to you and for you. And that is the end of Tales from the Tomb, this episode. And I look forward to having the next one with you on the next full moon or spooky day. And remember, no matter what this life may bring us, there's no need to fear because Christ has promised to never leave you and never forsake you. Even when the things look the worst. Christ has promised to be there. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me.
Psalm 23, verse 4.